Hello and welcome back, everyone. It's Friday, April the 2nd. Thank you for joining us. And we have a special co-host this week, Jacqueline Holland. Jackie and I go back a long time. We don't have to go all the way back into our, our history here. But Jackie, you're now with Farm Futures, a grain market analyst. And so it's been great to exchange ideas with you. We trade emails at least once a month and you help me think through the USDA reports. You also do a lot of primary data collection with your job, which I'm always super jealous about. I always like primary data collection. So I want to talk a little bit about that today. But first, Jackie, before we get into this, how's the spaghetti crop going in Europe? Have you been following the spaghetti crop in Europe? So I threw this out. We didn't prepare for this, but that no, is the... like you're, you're kind of throwing these for a loop here. I mean, so, I'm only following all the wheat crops in your... <laughs> like, so, I've been eating an obnoxious amount of pasta during this pandemic. So if the spaghetti crop mirrors anything in Europe, mirrors anything at my household, it's doing pretty good. So in the weekly email this week, we're going to include a link to the one of the first April Fool's probably done by television, the BBC, you know, a very proper news organization, had a three-minute video, it's still on YouTube today, about harvesting of the spaghetti crop in Switzerland. They really went deep into this narrative about how the families come out and they they grow to a certain length because of the genetic breeding and then they harvest it. It was a superior crop to the Italian crop because the Italians do it very different. So this was in the 50s. It was in the late 50s. So it's it's a 70-year-old prank. You'll have to watch the video. It's a great video. We'll include a link to this, but just a real commitment to April Fool's prank. This is wonderful. That is truly wonderful. I think the best prank that I saw this week gone wrong was the Volkswagen pretending that they were going to change their name and then it kind of blew up on all their investors. It's not funny, but it's 2021, so you got to take the laughs where you can get them. I haven't followed that enough to really know what was going on there. There was this idea that they're going to rebrand themselves, and then it was a joke, but like, no, they're really not joking. It's a very big convoluted, because the message was coming out in different waves. Of course, anything electric vehicle related is very excitable. So this is seen as a very fun thing. So let's back up a little bit in the week, Jackie. It's something that's not an April Fool's prank, but made us all do double takes. The USDA report, and I want to start off by asking you, what were you most surprised about? And I can share mine first, or you can share yours first. I think like everyone, I was surprised at how low the numbers came in relative to what we were all guessing. Also kind of surprised at maybe some of the things that we didn't put enough weight into leading up to the report. I was very surprised at how quickly prices took off. I mean, we already knew that we were going to have tight supplies going into the, the new crop year. I think, you know, when people finally sat down and penciled out the numbers, there was definitely some panic buying after the reports on Wednesday, which, you know, we kind of saw yesterday as prices eased back down and the profit takers settled in. So those were my big shocks. Initially, I had to beat myself out of this corn versus soybeans and soybeans being very attractive because the crop insurance price being at a record high. We wrote that article betting on corn and Brent really helped my thinking there. Like, okay, there's more than just the crop insurance price ratio. So I think I did okay with that. But I think to your point is 
somehow I took the narrative that we were going to go from 179 million acres under normal prevent plant. And we're going to move that somewhere to 182 or 183. And we sort of just, I just let the number grow on me. And that's what caused me a lot of the surprises. So how do we, how do all of a sudden did we get, and really 179 is probably statistically unchanged from the last few years. Right. And so we all kind of assumed that we were going to plant more. And I think one of the unique elements here is all the crops want some more production. Cotton yeah. is not willing to give up a lot. Wheat isn't really willing to give up a lot for the first time in I don't know half a decade or yeah, wheat hasn't Eight been years, yeah. hasn't been pushing its problems on the other crops. So it kind of reminds me of this Don Knotts movie where he was walking, shakiest gun in the West. He was walking through the desert and he's saying, "Water, water, I need water." And he's looking for an oasis. He keeps seeing mirages, but eventually he dismisses the next oasis and water as a mirage. He falls into this pond of water and he bumps up and says, air, air, I need air. The takeaway here is we've gone from too much stocks. You know, I want fewer acres. I want fewer acres. Now all the crops at one time have said, I need more acres and more production. And we've done this all at the same time. So it's sort of an interesting switch in the narratives. Because last year, we were talking about 20 plus percent ending stocks for corn. And now... We're at the most not historic lows, but we're lo- on the other range of extremes on the bottom side. Yeah. So things well, change fast. Very much. Last year when prices weren't that great and we were really kind of settling into the early days of the pandemic, the markets really weren't really weren't fighting one way or the other for corn or soybeans. USDA came out with what was it, 97 million acres of corn? that they thought for the March plantings. And obviously that didn't happen. I think there was a lot of that mentality or kind of a similar mentality from last year. USDA is usually, usually overestimates acres on this March 31st report. And, and I think that was also another really big surprise to market watchers because you don't see USDA underestimating planning intentions as often as you see them overestimating it. That's a, a good point. We're making an estimate today and then there's the air and then there's all the other things that can happen. You know, producers change their mind or mother nature says, here's what we're going to do with prevented planting, either above or below normal, but there's a lot of movement here still left. And so this is just the first size up of what the U.S. 2021 crop will look like. So a lot of moving pieces here. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Let's shift gears just a little bit. So I mentioned earlier, you get to do a lot of primary data collection and you do a lot of writing and you share those results with the public. So you had an acreage estimate for March, but let's talk about what you're going to be working on later in the summer and and tell us about the outputs, but then also the process, um, how you get those data. So we as consumers focus a lot on outputs, but help us be a better consumer of those outputs by telling us about your methods and processes. About three times a year, Farm Futures conducts farmer surveys. We go out, we send an email survey to our reader base, and we just try to get feedback from them about where their operations are heading, what's on their horizons, what might be shifting dynamics in their operations. So our latest survey, we conducted it the last week of February and the first week of March, We asked farmers what their planting intentions were for 2021. We received, I believe it was 1,066 responses from producers all across the country. 
our readership base is heavily focused in the Corn Belts. Our final estimates, we do try to make sure that the I states maybe don't outweigh states in the Northern Plains to make sure that our results are robust. But that is what gives us the insights to be able to make our acreage estimates to help farmers maybe prepare for these market reports a little bit better. You said you have three a year and you mentioned the February, March one. What's the next one that you have coming up? And then what's the third one that you have? The next one is going to be our August survey, and we will send that survey out probably about the middle of July. That's when we're going to try to look at some final acreage estimates for the crop year, as well as what farmers think how their yields are going to turn out for the year also. It coincides with USDA's first yield estimate from their survey to farmers too. So it just also kind of gives a little bit of a preliminary idea to farmers how this marketing year is going to actually shape up. And then our third survey, we conduct that in December and release those results in January. Again, it also coincides with USDA's kind of final data drop for the marketing year. It just includes a look at final yield, a look at final acreage, as well as some of our first guesses at what the new crop is going to look like. We time it all to be relevant with the markets, and our goal is to help farmers be better prepared for their marketing plans to be able to handle the USDA reports. Sort of another data point to help challenge our thinking For me, at least, sometimes I I look at those and say, okay, what am I missing, right? So (laughs) this is what your process captured. Here's where my expectations were. Uh, What might I be missing? What might I be putting too much weight or too little weight on? So it gives us a little bit of time to maybe pivot our thinking if that's that's necessary. Absolutely. That's our goal. (laughs) So Jackie, I also want to spend a little bit of time today thinking about all the uncertainty we have in 2021 And I have a couple different questions here for you to help us uh, navigate that uncertainty. You know, sometimes we know these things are off in the distance and maybe we can see them, but we can't make out how far away they are or how significant or how the magnitude of those. So the first one I want to ask you about is what is a piece of information that's out there that's in the the known world? I guess it's a quote that the, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed, right? So what's a piece of information that we might be talking about in the future that you're watching that you think is just not receiving enough weight here in April, 2021? I've been kind of taking a look at crop budgets in the Dakotas, trying to dig into some in the Southern states. I think these marginal acres are really going to be the acres that decide how how this marketing year shakes out. You can definitely argue that that's overhyped in the markets right now, but there's just a lot of lingering uncertainty out there. A year ago, we were dealing with the complete collapse of the ethanol market. I personally think that I was too optimistic in reviewing our March survey data and not maybe giving that more weight. I think farmers are still kind of nervous about what the world is going to look like in the coming months. 
I think that is kind of what we saw a little bit in Wednesday's report. The pandemic has impacted every single facet of the agricultural and food supply chain. Coming off of two years with just major weather shocks between 2019 and 2020, and paired with all of this uncertainty surrounding the ag supply chain and the pandemic recovery, I think those are kind of the little things that are really going to end up making the biggest difference in how final acres shake out. You mentioned the Dakotas, and there's a lot of ways we can describe those. The swing states, you know, that's where the acreage swings a lot, or the marginal acres where the marginal acres, in my mind, is a little way of saying swing, right? These are the acres that come in on the, or they, they exit. So where those additional acres might be, might be changing hands. But the thing that came to my mind as you were saying that is those are also some of the areas where we had a lot of prevent plant the last few years, right? There is a big historic prevented planting problem in the, in the northern parts of the Great Plains. You also mentioned the southern Great Plains, right? And that's where we have a lot of concerns about drought. And so it's, it's a very interesting framework you set up. So a lot of production is going into these regions that have a history of maybe having some production challenges. And so they have a way way of impacting total acreage and total production. And they're also sort of these areas that have, historically speaking, some challenges to to navigate. I think that's uh, important to keep in mind as well. My next question is, and I'll let you pick either corn or soybeans, one piece of information that you think is really important if you want to make a bullish case for those crops, but then what's a piece of information also that you would have to put into the consideration for the bearish? So I guess all those factors out there, right? Which one are you focused, do you think has the most weight for the bullish and the most weight for the bearish? And again, I'll let you pick corn or soybeans. I'll start with soybeans. I think really the the most important overarching story for the soybean market right now is how tight are we actually going to see these supplies get? I know I was texting with you after the reports dropped on Wednesday, and we figure in what USDA has for their current soybean demand for 2021, which as it stands is about 4.53 million bushels. I'm calculating that with these numbers, we're going to see 26 million bushels of soybeans left at the end of the year. Is that even possible? And that's not factoring in the eventual demand rationing that we're inevitably going to have to go through. To me, is going to be the most bullish factor that supports soybean prices this year from now until probably fall 2022 when we get that crop harvested. One of the ways that I was thinking about that, that you're sharing, a little different slice of that same piece of information was 2020, 2021 marketing and usage was well over 183 million using trend yields for combined corn and soybeans. So another way of saying this is we used more than 180 million worth of corn and soybean acres at trend yields last year. And stocks have gotten to the bottom of the barrel or getting close to the bottom of the barrel. So what's going to give as we start looking at trend yields, which is where we kind of start in early May, we're going to start with trend yields. What starts to get trimmed to keep stocks from falling much more Soybeans especially. We can debate how low soybean stocks can go from a sort of balance sheet perspective, but at some point we got to start moving the demand or usage side of the equation. So that's a challenge to think about. So Mm -hmm. let's, you know, that's the fun one, right? So let's go to the other side. 
if I told you tomorrow morning you'd been in a coma, it's December and corn prices are below $4 a bushel, soybean prices are below $10 a bushel, and you say, was it blank? What is that bearish factor that you would initially jump to that makes you think, oh, it was, it must have been this that caused things to shift? Was it China? going to be my first question. My next question is going to be, oh, I guess La Nina in South America wasn't that bad this year. <laughs> but no, China is going to be the first thing that I ask. I think that's a, it's a good, good way to think about some of that uncertainty that's out there and all of the, the issues that are swirling around a little bit. So th- that's a good answer. Thank you for that. Helpful. So we're getting close to our time here. I wanted to give you a chance to share what are some other things that you're thinking about? This is sort of an open-ended area. It could be something ag-related, stat-related, economy-related, or just something else that you've been having on your mind lately. Before I came to this job, I worked in food manufacturing and got to see the true dynamics of the food supply chain. My filter in looking at grain markets comes through looking at it from the buyer side. The recent supply chain issues that we've seen have just absolutely captivated me. I mean, of course, there's the there was the Ever Given in the Suez Canal. Like I followed that 24-7. I mean, it wasn't going anywhere, so I didn't follow it anymore. <laughs> But I think as farmers, it's so easy to kind of get lost in the day-to-day of production and doing chores and planting and field work. It's a small part of a very big supply chain. And looking at some of the problems that we're having with container freight, even in manufacturing, getting some of these chips out of Asia and into the U.S., to make sure that our infrastructure system can support the movement of grain at the end of the day. That's something that I am watching very closely. With the pandemic, we've just seen this massive change in consumer buying behaviors. I have a girlfriend who's a cocoa merchandiser. She was telling me about how a lot of stores like Walmart, Target, they didn't want to change their shelf lineups for 2021. And she's like, it, this just has so many impacts from the consumer level all the way down to the farmers. And I think too, as, as we try to come out of this pandemic and recover from the economic fallout of it, The one thing that I know when we worked together at Purdue that was made very clear to me was the impact of fear that it has on supply and demand fundamentals. And there's just still a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty in the market. And that is just kind of creating some fascinating new consumer and production dynamics that I don't think they're going to recover as quickly as they began. I appreciate you sharing that. So you kind of put on a little different hat, right? This idea of if you're a buyer for an organization and all of a sudden you're thinking about supply and supply availability in a much different lens over the last year and maybe over the last two or three years, because in a lot of ways, the trade disruptions might have started with the trade war and all the tariffs that came into place. And then we saw COVID and then the availability of stuff because China shut down their economy for a while. And now all the freight challenges, this plug up in the Suez Canal. 
I guess there's a bunch of people who can go out and do the research. And I've seen some of it that says the Suez Canal plugging up wasn't that big of a thing in the grand scheme of things. But I think what you're trying to shed light on here is actually it does start to impact the decision-making that somebody who's trying to make sure that there's all the slots are filled at the, at the store or that they have enough supply to get their factories working. And so there might be exactly. less emphasis in just in time and more emphasis on just in case. Exactly. So I think that's a really important idea. And, and Brent and I have talked about this before, this idea of slack capacity. Well, is slack capacity waste that we can eliminate or is slack capacity that just in case that buffer, that margin of error that we keep in, in the system? And so it's, it's interesting to see how the narratives can, can change over time. I think the perspectives have completely shifted on that too, because a year ago, let's keep things lean. Let's keep everything right on time. Let's have no excess. And now a lot of companies are struggling to get supplies, like basic supplies to manufacture goods, to mill wheat, to, I worked for a cheese company, so to process cheese into milk. It's a lot difficult for these processors and manufacturers to turn on a dime as much as it is for consumers and ag producers. Yeah, I I think it's a complete shift of perspective. I think now, you know, we want to make sure that we have the supplies we need to keep production at a steady rate versus save money. So the last thing I'll, I'll, I want to share, I'll leave listeners thinking about is what have they said in the last year? Oh, I can't get right. Like last time we were talking about all the things you couldn't get from toilet paper to swimming pools and bikes. And now I'm hearing farmers, you know, and, and other people talking about like, oh, there's not a lot of vehicles available at the lot because of supply chain issues. Just recognize when you hear that, just think about how that is impacting consumers, purchasers at organizations. And that's a a huge, it's an important thing to think about in the mindset. It's less about the actual, can I buy it or not? Because you could go find a substitute or different cheese or something else. Or it just wasn't that important. But think about how it impacts your decision because then all of a sudden it's, it's sitting on the shelf. I can buy it. Let's get it right now because just in case I need it down the road. So exactly. Well, Jackie, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for contributing. I want to encourage all the listeners to follow you. Of course, your farmfutures.com. They can, where you write a daily commentary and is it weekly? The economics post is that weekly? Yes. What day does that come out on Friday? Yes. By Friday. By Friday, I always read it over the weekend. So I want—I thought no, if it was a Friday post or if it was just sort of as it as it happens throughout the week. But it's usually as it happens. But Friday is kind of my my key deadline. So it's sort of a, a deeper dive into something, right? It's a lot of charts. It's a lot of digging into some of the nuances that help decision makers sort of navigate some trend that we might be hearing snippets about. Those are right. farmfutures.com. Also, they can follow you on Twitter at JK. Holland 89. So at JK Holland 89. Jackie, thanks again so much for joining us. Hope we can do this again in the future. Thank you so much, David. I hope so too. All right. We'll catch you all next week. In the meantime, stay curious. <laughs>